Good morning, Grace. Grab your Bibles, and as you do, this, as we were just singing in the second service earlier, I never thought as we were singing the song, draw your swords, O ransom sons of light, and charge hell's rusty jail. That's very poetic language for what we're doing right now. When you grab your Bible and open it, this is the sword of the Spirit, right? This is the, the Word of God that is powerful to call us from sin to darkness, to help us fight the good fight of faith. And so that's what we're doing. Open our Bible, going right here to God's Word this morning. Um, just as an encouragement, uh, one way you can be preparing your heart for a Sunday morning gathering here at Grace um, is uh, every week we put out on our Facebook page and I believe on our Grace website um, the passages that will be preached the following week or if you look in your bulletin today, it'll tell you what's coming next week. But I really encourage you at some point in the week to just read through the passage that we'll in, uh, be in. It, it can be so helpful uh, to get your mind beginning to, to think about uh, what the Lord might have for you uh, today. And I think it helps us sing. I, I was singing some of these songs this morning, knowing where Genesis 28 is going to take us. And uh, some of these, these themes are going to be magnified. Uh, by grace I am redeemed. By grace I am restored. We're going to see... Uh, some, some restoration, a word of grace being spoken over Jacob this morning. Or even this, your grace that I cannot explain, not by my earthly wisdom. Uh, God's grace toward Jacob in this passage should cause us to scratch our heads and just say, that is not the way earthly wisdom tells us to show grace. God is unbelievably gracious. And, uh, and even this, this last song, when Satan tempts you to, to despair, tells you of guilt within we feel cut off from God, undeserving, unworthy of God. Where do we look? Well, we look to him who made an end for all of our sin. All these themes are going to be magnified for us this morning. So why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 28. And uh, I have a question I want to ask us to think about before we dive in. And it's this. Have you ever had your sin blow up in your face? I love Kent Kunky. First service, he said, many times. <laughs> I was so thankful he said that when he said it too because some of us might be thinking, well, one time uh, that happened. And no, probably many times our sin has brought about consequences of one type or another. Maybe... Uh, on one hand, maybe you've experienced sin blowing up in your face like a sudden explosion like Esau a couple of chapters back, where in a moment his appetite won over wisdom uh, and valuing what is really uh, good and worthy of valuing, and he just grabbed and ate. And maybe in a moment uh, for you of desire or temptation, you justified unethical ends toward means, or you crossed a line, or you grabbed and you satisfied that appetite. You did something, and then the consequences came. And with that, maybe guilt or shame, or regret. Maybe you've experienced sin blowing up, not like a huge explosion, but sort of like a, a pile of smoldering ashes is the image in my mind, after a long period of just sowing patterns of sin. Prodigal sons sort of coming to the point of going, I'm, I'm at bottom. Jeremiah Chapter 2, Jeremiah says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's a metaphor for a way of living that takes, removes God, the fountain of life, from the center of our life 
and substitutes that center around which our life orbits with any number of things, even good things, and says, this is what life's about. This is what makes me happy. And, and Jeremiah is saying, you know what? You, you can do that, but the happiness is just going to drain out of that as fast as you try to fill it up. And maybe you've had that experience of coming to that point where you realize the water's just not staying in and you're left with the emptiness. Just one of my many times that the sin has blown up in my face was in the year 1991. I've shared this a little bit before here, but I went away to college. I had been grown up here all my life, Southern California boy. I transferred out to Minnesota for a year to go to school with a friend of mine. And it was my chance to sort of explore the world and be on my own and, 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 and try some of these broken cisterns out for myself to just see if they could hold water. And for about nine months, I did. I tried to sort of uh, carve out the leaky cisterns of partying and social acceptance with coworkers at the restaurant that I worked at, um, drinking uh, and getting drunk and seeing how, 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 how does that make me feel. Um, uh, stepping over God's good boundaries of physical intimacy in a relationship. Things that a year before I would have said, no, I never would have crossed that line. Buying stuff. Uh, my, my credit card became a, another little idol of mine. I had this brand new Discover card and I discovered that I could go every week to the mall and just buy stuff. And it, it was fun and it made me happy for a little while. And then the next week I would want to go buy something else. And I come to the end of this year, it was the end of August and my financial aid fell through. I think that was the Lord's providence of saying, you need to come home. But I remember this empty feeling of, of it just doesn't hold water. It just doesn't hold water and feeling low and ashamed and sort of wondering, would God have me back? Have you ever been in a place like that? I wonder if maybe some of you are in a place like that right now this morning. I just described uh, your present circumstances. Well, that's good because the place that Jacob finds himself in Genesis 28 is that sort of place. His sin has blown up in his face. And I think he's not sure uh, whether or not he's, he's sort of lost his opportunity for grace with God. Let's back up and remind ourselves how Jacob got here to Genesis 28 verse 10. He'd grown up with this promise that was spoken about he and his twin brother before they were born, that the older would serve the younger. And he was the younger. He came out second. And so all his life, uh, he had known that God had said, I will come out on top. I am going to be the, the, the one who receives the blessing. But his life... It didn't look like that because all along it was no secret. His dad loved Esau. He was the strong, hairy hunter who brought him the kind of food that dad liked and they obviously had a bond and Jacob was just a smooth little man. There was a mama's boy, the way the, the text tells us. And he sees it coming. Dad loves Esau. And when dad's near the end of his life and he's blind and, and seemingly on his deathbed, Isaac decides, you know what, he's just going to bless Esau anyway. Who cares about what God said? And he calls Esau and he calls him to make a meal for him and they're going to celebrate this and, and Isaac's just going to bless Esau anyway. And Jacob sees this going down. Rebecca sees it going down and they plot together to head this off at the pass. And that's what Jackson took us to last week, this, this story of his lie and his deception and even his taking the Lord's name in vain and dragging God's name into his lie. And he reaches out and he, and he grabs the blessing. 
And he pulls it off. He gets in there and he tricks his father and his father speaks those words over him that he had dreamt of hearing his whole life. The blessing, the, 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 the fatness of the earth and the wealth is gonna be yours and the blessing and it's on you, my son. He received that blessing from the father who loved his older brother best. And it was very short-lived, wasn't it? Even the way that the, the, the story unfolds, he no sooner hears that, leaves the tent, Esau comes back and it's all exposed and Isaac's trembling mad and Esau's really mad. Now he's ticked off his Sasquatch brother, you know, who wants to murder him. And, and, and I mean, Esau is basically saying, I'm, I'm gonna wait till dad's gone so he doesn't have to see this, but then I'm gonna kill him. And Rebecca finds out, tells Jacob and says, you've gotta go. You got to run Th- hundreds of miles back. I want you to flee. Go back to, to, to my, my, my kindred back in Haran, Laban's household. Go there and, and just lay low until maybe there's a time when Esau's anger blows over and, and I'll tell you, you can come back. And so Jacob heads for the hills and he's just heading out of the land, uh, the promised land on the run as our story begins here in verse 10. Not exactly how he hoped this would all work out. He got the words of blessing, but it doesn't look like they're going to come true. And that's the place where this encounter with God happens. Let's read it. Genesis 28, 10. Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep. And he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. He said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then... Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let me pray. God, would you make us like the Thessalonians that Paul said, Uh, when they received the word of God, they received it for what it really is, God's word, not just man's word. And they responded with faith uh, and worship and 
trusting obedience, Lord. I pray that would be us here as we, uh, you encounter us, you speak to us through your word this morning. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I want to break this into three little chunks here. The first little chunk, the place uh, that this encounter happens. Second part is the dream that Jacob has, and then his response. I want to take each one of those and, and think about them. Let's start with the place. Jacob's in the middle of nowhere. As it opens here, at least from Jacob's, Jacob's perspective, He's in the middle of nowhere. He's left Beersheba. He's traveling toward Haran, which is going to be hundreds of miles. Seems, sounds like he's on his own. I mean, unlike back when Abraham sent a servant back to find a, a wife for uh, Isaac and sent all these camels and wealth and sort of a whole, you know, uh, uh, retinue of, of, of representatives, he's on his own. I mean, he's just by himself and he's nowhere. It says, at least at the beginning of the story, it's a no-name place. It just came to a certain place from Jacob's perspective. And he stayed there because the sun had set. So it's just a place that he got to and the sun was going down and he was tired and he had to get some sleep. And so he's just nowhere. There's no tree or rock or shrine or altar that, that he's aware of. He just gets to this place, it gets dark, and he lays down. And it's not a very inviting sounding place. It says he's using a stone for a pillow. He finds one of the stones. It's pretty bleak sounding, right? That's one of the reasons I hate sleeping on the ground, camping. I just, that was a little insulite pad is not enough. You just feel it. But he just takes a stone, puts it under his head, he lays his head on a stone, uh, and he goes to sleep. The only reason I can think of of choosing a stone to put under your head as a pillow is you don't have anything else with you, right? I mean, he's just, not, he's just laying on the cold, hard ground, and now it says the sun is setting. So that's the, the picture. It's dark cold, he's alone, he's in an uncertain place, and he's, he's running for his life. The spoken blessing behind him doesn't look like it's going to materialize. You know, he had asked, I forgot to mention this, but I think this is a key in last week's text. He has a moment of, of, of pricked conscience as Rebecca gives this, lays this plan out, and he says, what if I end up bringing a curse upon myself instead of a blessing? He pauses. What, what if this backfires and I end up bringing a curse down? And I believe as he's laying here, falling asleep with a stone pillow, I imagine he's wondering if that's exactly what he's done. He, he grabbed for the blessing, but instead he's brought the curse down upon himself. And notice what he's not doing here. He's not crying out to God. He's not repentant. There's nothing here that says he's remorseful or, or crying out to God for help. It's kind of bleak. He just goes to sleep on a, on a stone in the dark on his way uh, into exile. In fact, up until this point in Genesis, Jacob hasn't given any indication that he's embraced the God of Abraham and Isaac as his God. He even says, uh, hey, the, the Lord, your God, gave me success dad when he comes into the tent and tells his lie. I think in here this scene is the beginning of Jacob beginning to come to faith and embracing the God of Abraham and Isaac as his God as we see at the end. But at the beginning he's not looking for God. God comes calling him in this dark nowhere place and then he has this dream. He falls asleep and God appears to him in a dream. God reveals himself and notice he sees three things and then he hears God speak three things in this dream. There's a visual and then there's a, a voice that he hears and they're connected. What God shows him sort of pulls the curtain back and reveals to him a spiritual reality 
It's not just a made-up story or metaphor that God shows him, but I think we're intended to understand that God shows him a spiritual reality, and that vision that he sees is showing him what God says to him with words. They're, they're, they're the same message, I think. The, the one reinforces the other. So let's look at what he sees. First of all, he sees this ladder that's bridging heaven at the top, and it's touching the earth. In fact, it's touching the earth right there uh, where he's laying, right there in this nowhere place uh, where he's asleep on a stone pillow. And ladder's probably not the greatest visual. I mean, I picture like one of those rickety extension ladders and only one person can climb up on it at a time and someone's got to hold the bottom, right? This seems to be something way bigger than that. It's this big staircase that's ascending, uh, the, the angels are ascending and descending on, so it's big, which is the second thing he sees are angels. On this ladder, this staircase, angels of God are ascending and descending on it. So don't, if, as we're visualizing, don't picture precious moments cherubs here or little, you know, moving gifts sort of floating back up, and up and down on this thing. Angels are powerful, glorious, fear-inspiring, fear-inducing real beings who serve God. And when they show up, usually the first thing they have to say is fear not or get up off of your face. And he sees a whole bunch of them and they're ascending and descending angels. Psalm 103 verse 20 describes angels. It says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. They're messengers from God. They're heralds. They're representatives of God. They're, they're royal, the host of heaven, right? And what do they do? What, what sort of words are they obeying? What kind of words are going out from God that angels, his mighty ones uh, who do his word, are obeying? Here's an example. Hebrews 1.14 says about angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In other words, they're not just doing random tasks, but God is sending his angels into the world to be at work on his behalf for the sake of his people, for those who are to inherit salvation. The angels represent God's holy help, his, his, his sovereign aid and provision and protection and guidance. And so these first two things uh, Jacob sees is this staircase and these angels, there's this busy traffic. Angels are coming and going right from the very place where he's laying, this nowhere place, where he feels powerless alone and maybe like he's lost it all. The vision is God is at work. He hasn't left you. He is busy at work. God is on the move, Jacob. Despite appearances, it made me think of another story uh, in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a similar sort of uh, uh, re uh, revelation that God makes. Elisha the prophet and his servant are in this city, and the king of Syria is ticked off because Elisha is helping the king of Israel, and he doesn't like that. So he sends his army down and his chariots to surround the city with Elisha and his servant. And they wake up in the morning, and they're surrounded, and the servant is panicking, saying, what do we do? Listen, Elisha says, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them, which is funny because I, I imagine the servant like looking around like, is there someone I don't know about? And he says, yes. 
Elisha prays and says, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of this young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. God pulls back the veil and and allows his servant to see what Elisha was trusting already. Greater are are those that are with us than the enemies right in front of us. God and all of his heavenly host are for us. And and Jacob is given this glimpse of a similar sort of picture of these angels ascending, descending right on this place where he uh, is at, sleeping. Doesn't look like God's at work, but he is. And then the third thing he sees is the Lord himself. Behold, the Lord stood above it. Or your, your footnote, like if you have the ESV, might say, or the Lord stood beside him. Uh, it could be either one. Um, either way, the idea is God shows up and is present. He's not far off and remote, but God appears here. I, I, think, I seem to think beside him seems to make sense because he wakes up and his first thought is, surely the Lord is in this place. There's this sense of God is drawn near to me and he's, he's with me. But either way, the Lord himself appears um, and, and then he speaks. And he hears him say three things. First, number, uh, verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I try to imagine is that f- the first words come out that he hears, I'm the Lord. I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac. You know, the guy you just lied to, the guy you just stole the blessing from, the guy who you drug my holy name into your lie and said that I blessed you so that you could carry this out. That's who I am. And then notice the one thing Jacob doesn't hear God say next. Any word of reproach or rebuke or reprimand The first words aren't, what have you done? Why have you done this? You faithless (laughs) Jacob. He he doesn't say anything of that nature, which might be something, if you've been with us for a while in this series, that's been bothering you about these Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stories. It's come up in my grace group a couple of times. Abraham fails miserably, Isaac fails miserably, and God comes and speaks, and there's no rebuke or, or he, he just continues to reaffirm his blessing. You're thinking, what, what is, why is God holy and, and not saying something about this? But it shouldn't surprise us because God has made it clear back in chapter 15 with Abraham that the, the, all the blessing of this covenant of land, descendants, a nation through whom the, the whole world is going to be blessed one day, all that blessing doesn't rise and fall on their faithfulness or their faithlessness, but on him. That was that vision that God made. Abraham cut the animals apart and set them out as if they were going to enter into a covenant, but then he falls into a deep sleep. And in this vision, God himself passes through the midst, signifying, this is all on me. The blessing rises and falls on my faithfulness, not yours. And so, We see it playing out. They act faithlessly and God just continues to faithfully uphold his promise and say, I am going to bring this about. Talk about grace that I could not explain by earthly wisdom. It's incredibly gracious. 
So he says, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. And here's the second thing, my paraphrase, you've still got my blessing. You still have my blessing. He extends the promises, all the same promise points that Abraham had received and that Isaac had heard again. Now, it's not Isaac speaking this blessing over him, which he thinks maybe I've uh, forfeited that. God speaks it over him. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In other words, Jacob, even though you failed to trust me and you, and you felt like you had to grab for it yourself, you didn't need to, but you did. Even though you did, I'm still gonna confer this blessing on you. And third thing God then says follows it up with, I still have your back. That's my paraphrase. I still have your back. In other words, as you now are, he's got 20 years or so before he comes back around to the land with wives and wealth and all this, and, and, and arguably all set into motion by his faithless act of grabbing for himself and then having to run. But God says this to him, behold, I am with you right now while you're sleeping down there on that rock. And I'll keep you, I will keep you future wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Can you imagine how sweet those words would have sounded? He's all by himself. And he hears God say, no, I'm with you. And see all those angels? He's defenseless. He's, he's alone. And, and God says, I will keep you in this land that you're traveling through, this hundreds of miles of journey. And as you go back to Haran and everything that goes down there, uh, and we, we, we had our reading service, you know it's not going to go easily for them. And God says, I'll keep you wherever you go. And he has nothing to his name right now, but he says, I'll bring you back here and I'll give you all this land and your descendants are going to spread out to the north, south, east, and west and occupy it all faithful God for a fallen people, fallen Jacob. And it has an effect on Jacob. Let's look at his response. It changes his perspective and it changes his heart. We begin to see his heart <laughs> change here. Um, first of all, the perspective, verse 16, he wakes up from his sleep and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. In other words, I was wrong. I thought I was nowhere, that God was long gone. He was behind me. Blessing was behind me. Turns out God is right here. He is with me. And I didn't know it. I was wrong. And then he has a change of heart. Verse 17, he was afraid. He, tre he trembled. There was reverence before a God. And he says, how awesome is this place? His eyes got wide. This is none other than the house of God. I was just sleeping here on this rock. Turns out the Lord of the covenant is here with me. This is the, the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. God is with me, the schemer and the, the blessing thief. And in faith, I think he does two things. I think we begin to see his faith here. We see it in, as he worships. He, he wakes up and he takes this stone that his head had been on where he'd had all that dream and he tilts it up and kind of creates a pillar out of it so that, it, that people passing by would notice, hey, that rocks don't usually look like that. And it sort of stands out as a landmark and he pours, pours oil over the top of it and he names the place Bethel, meaning house of God, signifying God met me here, God's presence 
is here with me. It was here with me. And second, I think in faith he makes a vow. I don't think, some commentators think he's, he's sort of qu- quickly like, here's this gracious offer from God. And then he's like bargaining with God, like, okay, God, um, all right, I hear what you're saying. But if you hold up your end of the deal and you feed me and you clothe me and you protect me and you take me all the way back around and then you give me, you know, these things you promised, then you will be my God and, and I will give back to you a tenth. I'm not so sure that, that it's that sort of tone here. It seems to me that he wakes up and his heart is beginning to change. There's reverence there. There's awe, trembling before God. He's, 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 he realizes what a gracious blessing that God would treat him this way and still give him the blessing. I, th- I think that this vow we need to read more generously that he's trusting it. He's saying, oh, in other words, like this, okay, if, if God will be with me and he'll keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of, and of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. In other words, if, if I go forward with these assurances, God, that you go with me, all right, I'm going to entrust myself to you. Now, I want to qualify that because I think that in the next chapters, we see this is just the beginning of Jacob, I think, completely entrusting himself. And not until, I think, chapter 35, when he finally does come back into the land and sort of decisively has all his household get rid of any other foreign gods they might have brought. And he sort of officially kind of makes it formal. But, but this is the beginning of him, I think, entrusting himself to, okay, God, if I go under these promises and if that vision that I just saw is true and you're going with me, all right, here we go. I'm going to follow. And I think his promise to give the Lord a tenth of whatever the Lord gives him is a little fruit of that faith. One commentator says, this promise shows the beginning of his uh, maturation from a grabber to a giver. And he begins to become Jacob, uh, whose God is the God of Jacob as well. Okay, so all this is great news for Jacob at this point in the story. But our question is, how is this great news for us? What encouragement or insurance do I have or do you have as God's people that we can count on God to deal with us like this, graciously, patiently, not forsaking us even when we sin and even when our sin blows up and and we fail spectacularly? How, how does this blessing become ours? Turn to uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, right at the end, the very last verse, Jesus refers all the way back to this crazy little dream that Jacob had, and he and he relates it to himself. And, and the setting is, he's beginning to call some of his first disciples. And one of those is this, this man, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel meets Jesus. And Jesus tells him something about him, uh, Nathaniel that he couldn't have known other than apparently by divine knowledge. And Nathaniel's amazed. And he says, Rabbi, surely you are the king of Israel. Um, and Jesus, my paraphrase here, says, uh, you, you think that was amazing, <laughs> that I knew that. And then he says, verse 51, you'll see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a visual. 
The question is, how exactly does Jacob's dream refer to Jesus? In what way is he, is, is, are they going to see in Jesus something like what Jacob was shown in his dream back in Genesis 28? That's a great question. It's a question I spent two days this week wrestling with, and here's my answer. I'm not exactly sure which one of these. So it's okay to say that. I, I think there's a few options here, but I'm not convinced clearly on one of these, but I want to take a stab at the end of maybe laying three of these out and say maybe this is a safe way. Maybe it's sort of the whole thing all together. So could it be Jesus is saying, I'm the staircase, right? That that seems like an obvious one. A lot of commentators would say, Jesus is saying, no, now I'm the staircase. Angels are descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Jesus is now taking the place of staircase. In other words, he's the mediator. He's the bridge between holy God in heaven and us sinners on earth. And and his death in our place and his life counted as ours is the bridge that that now uh, gains access to heaven, to God, which that's all true. The book of Hebrews says that because we have this great high priest, Jesus, there's this new and living way that's been opened in the heavens, in, in the very place where God dwells. And we are now invited as, uh, to be brought in as many sons and daughters to glory. So that's certainly true that Jesus is the bridge and the mediator. I'm just not entirely convinced that Jesus is meaning that right here. I had to laugh. I called Fred Sanders on Thursday. He'd done a lot of work in John, I I knew, in the last couple of years. And so I called him and just said, John 151, Fred, what do you think's going on right here? And we talked about it for a while, and he ended up saying, I'm not so sure. (laughs) So if Fred's not so sure, then I feel okay saying I'm not so sure. Um, But he pointed me toward Charles Simeon, who his commentaries are online. He was a pastor and a professor in, in Cambridge. But Uh, I I went and read his little bit on this and it made me laugh, actually. He says, instead of supposing with all writers upon this subject that the latter was a type of Christ in his divine human nature mediating between heaven and earth, then he says, which is fanciful and without any warrant in Scripture. (laughs) What do you really think, Charles? Um, He says, I rather think that the vision itself was the type. I want to come back to that in a minute. But I'm sympathetic here to him at least going, well, that, that's all true. Yes, mediator, he is the way to God. But in Jacob's dream, the question doesn't seem to be, how can sinful people um, be brought up to a holy God? All this traffic on the bridge is angelic traffic. It's not sort of either bringing us up on this thing. And so it seems a little weird for Jesus to, to go there. Maybe Jesus is saying, I'm the place. I'm the angels are, are descending and descending on this place where Jacob is. And, and so he wakes up and says, ah, oh, this place is the house of God and the gate of heaven. This place is, is where the, the conduit of God's blessing, his angelic help and support and presence, his divine presence. This is the, the point right here. And Jesus is now saying, I'm the place. I'm the conduit of all of God's divine presence and blessing going forward with you. Maybe Jesus means I'm the place. I'm not sure. Don Carson, his John, uh, Gospel of John commentary, says, well, actually, no, in Genesis, it makes more sense that what he saw was the angels were ascending and descending on Jacob, not on the staircase. And so now Jesus is then saying, I'm the new Jacob, I'm the new Israel. Jacob, at that time, was the one through whom God's blessing was going to pass. Now Jesus is saying, I am the one in whom God's blessing is going to be completed and, and, and spread out to the world. Maybe that's, that's true too. All, see, all these things are true about Jesus. But I wonder if when, when Charles Simeon says, maybe we need to think of the whole vision sort of together as the point. Think about it like this. 
in his dream, the vision, the indelible, this indelible picture that no doubt as days went on and he was in danger and he was in trouble and tempted to think that, is God still with me? But he would picture that, that image, the whole thing, the, the staircase and the angels and the Lord being with it. That was to reinforce the words God said. It was a picture of the words. And what were the words? I am with you and will keep you wherever you go until I fulfill every last promise I've made. That's what the picture is about. That's the image. And it's like, I think Jesus comes along now and he's saying, I'm going to give you an even clearer visual. Where can we look for assurance that God's promises to be with us as his sheep, him as our shepherd or as his people, and that he's going to keep us wherever we go, even when our sin takes us down paths and reaps consequences and brings um, pain into our life? Where do we look for assurance now? What image should be burned into our mind that reminds us God will be with us until the day that the whole earth is filled, north, south, east, and west, with his people, and we're there with him? Now our image is Jesus. And it's the whole of his life, his birth, his righteous life, his temptation and victory, his suffering in our place, his death at the cross and his resurrection, all of which, Charles Simeon points out, was clearly attended by angels. And angels were ministering to Jesus. And God's divine presence and blessing was with Jesus all along as he ran the race perfectly. Angels announced that he was going to be born. Angels announced his birth to the shepherds. In temptation, he comes out of the wilderness with Satan and the angels were ministering to him. And even in the garden, the night he's going to drink the cup and he's worried and he's praying and, and, and sweat and tears. And it says an angel ministered to him and strengthened him. All along, God's divine presence, even though as it came to the climax of the cross, it was going to look pretty hopeless, like God had forsaken him. Like, where is your God, Jesus? But we're to understand as he's hanging on the cross, no, it's not that God's angels have all vanished. In fact, when he was getting arrested and Peter grabs his sword, he says to Peter, do you think I can't appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? At the cross, Jesus isn't forsaken by God. He is being treated as we deserve. We were the inheritance stealers. Jesus told a parable one time, uh, and he says, uh, the kingdom of God is like this. The, the king uh, made a vineyard, built a vineyard and planted a vineyard and gave it to servants um, to, to tend and, and, and bear fruit. And from time to time, he sent representatives to go and check and see if there was fruit, and they kept killing them each time. And finally, the king sent his own son, and they grabbed him and said, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. That's what Jesus was happening to Jesus on the cross. And he's doing it to take the curse of our sins so that we can share in his inheritance with him as the son of the king. That's what was happening at the cross. Surely God was in that place. And so that, I think, is our image this morning I want us to leave with here. N not the staircase and the angels that, that Jacob saw, but Jesus, his life and death and resurrection that, that are finished, that aren't going to change and apply to us today. 
And we keep that image in view, and I want us to finish then by hearing, I think, Jesus' equivalent of the words that, that God spoke to Jacob as he lay on the ground. Jesus, just before he left his disciples, and he gave his great commission, the words that went along with the vision were this, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's to be our hope as his people, as his church. Let's take a, a minute before we close with a song, a really appropriate song that Caleb chose this morning too, He Will Hold Me Fast. But take a moment to pray quietly. Talk to the Lord. What did you need to hear this morning? How do you need to deal with God here in prayer? After we sing, or as we're singing, our prayer team volunteer members are going to be moving to some stations around the room. And as soon as the service is over, you're welcome to come to any of them and ask for prayer. We would love to invite you to do that. They'll have name tags that say prayer team on them. But take a minute uh, and pray. And then Caleb will lead us.